I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Issue 110 of Rouleur magazine will be with subscribers very soon. It's the Classics Edition with stories on Paris-Roubaix, including an interview with last year's winner, Sonny Cobrelli, classic photos from the classics by Graham Watson, and a ranking of Belgian beers by Andy and Vince of the Deserter blog, who are on this podcast in a while. Before that, I sat down with Ruler's executive editor, Ian Cleverly, and staff writer, Rachel Jarry, and we were soon discussing the subject of one of the other feature interviews in the edition, Tadej Pogacar, and his astonishing 50 kilometer winning breakaway in the Strade Bianchi. And it wasn't like some sort of blistering attack either, was it? He just just seemed to sort of ease himself out, you know, ease himself away. It was like, my word. It was like it was an accident almost. He like looked behind and he was a bit like, why is no one there? And it was just like no one could follow him. Also he was he was impressive like technically as well, I thought like actually on the descents and stuff, he's actually a really, really good bike handler. It's not just that he's like super strong. He was cyclocross champion at one point, wasn't he, I think? Yeah, I think he was Slovenian cyclocross champ, yeah. Yeah, and you could tell that going down the hills because he was sliding, but he he didn't look worried about it. No, he didn't. And um I think like he was really impressive and obviously that's kind of what everyone's gonna be talking about, but you should look at kind of the podium as well, like Valverde coming in second, like I think that's his career high finish at Strada Bianchi and it was quite good to see like he he was like kind of celebrating go, going over the line for like second place and yeah was, like that was, was pretty was, impressive. It was kind of overlooked wasn't it be, yeah. be, because Pogaccia was the, very much the, the big story and it was like oh my word Valverde just like uh, you know at his age uh, you know shouldn't say that but you know it's true isn't it it's like brilliant ride some other interesting events on the, the men's edition a couple of um a uh, couple of crashes which probably did alter the course of the race uh, uh the one that particularly struck me was the one that took out alaphilippe alaphilippe always crashes in, with style doesn't he such such a plomb it was a i beautiful mean beautiful somersault yeah it? yeah yeah i think if that was you know high diving he'd get uh maximum points i think for that i i did enjoy in the in the the the, the main photo i think it was luke Clusson that took it the the, the one that went viral is the look look on the face of um, Lewis Askey, I think, who's a, a couple back from him, and he's got his cheeks blown out. And it's it's either in a kind of like, uh-oh, or it's a, okay, I got this. And he, he 
he kind of got it, but I think he, he still went over, didn't he, with a few few of the others. Yeah, I think he would get the prize for being like the quickest one to get back on his bike. He was literally like, it was so impressive. I think he'd been on the ground for like half a second and he just picked up his bike and got going again straight away. And Alaphilippe actually got back on and um, uh, and rode again, but it, it, it was fairly obvious he wasn't really, Hart wasn't in it from that point on, I don't think, was it? Yeah, I mean, the great, great thing about Alaphilippe, even when he's quitting a race, he he was he's still playing to the camera, isn't he? He's still looking looking to the camera and going, you know, cut, I'm out. I'm, it's like fair play to him, what a showman. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see actually. Like, had he not had that crash, would he have been one who would have been able to follow Podjaka in the end or not? Because he did, he had to do so much work to get back on. And then I think he kind they kind of agreed he'd be working for Askreen from that point anyway after his crash. But yeah, it's a shame we couldn't see him on sort of top form battling with Podjakar. It's weird the way that Stradivianki, uh, both the men's and the women's, have really has really established itself as a as a kind of early highlight of the season because actually it's not been going for that long, has it? It's not you know it's not existed as a race for that long. No, people talk in terms of it being a classic, you know, and it kind of it's an instant classic. It's just a great race. So, People are talking right. about it being a monument, aren't they? They're yeah, talking about yeah, it indeed, being the sixth, yeah. sixth monument, yeah. Yeah. So, which would mean that Pogaccio could become the first person to win six monuments. Can we see Podjakar winning Paris-Roubaix, though? That's the one I'm not, I'm not 100% That's convinced on. That's a big ask. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about uh, Paris-Roubaix later in the uh, podcast. The women's race as well. If anything, the women's race was a much better race, more entertaining uh, race right the way to the end. Lotta Kopecky, what, a, what an amazing performance. That finish was like that's the best of any finish of, of any edition of that race. I swear, the way she took that final corner and sort of put her in the barriers, whether she meant to or not, <laughs> it was uh, it was beautiful. It was like you just didn't know which way it was going to go. Like every 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 single corner, it just seemed to chop and change. It was, it was wonderful, and I felt a bit guilty for, for for saying that that you know, I thought the men's race was boring in comparison, but it, you know the men's race was great, just in a different way. It just didn't have that that absolute nail-biting finish, which the um, television director managed to miss. Yeah. <sighs> I think watching Kopecky as well, what made it so exciting is like you almost thought she was going to go, like you didn't know she was going to hold on. And she had such a different style to Anamique. She was sort of in the saddle. She just was like keeping her rhythm, keeping her rhythm. And like the tension where like wondering if she was going to hold the wheel because we've seen Anamique ride away from people so many times in those situations. And the fact she held on, I was just like, I kind of didn't mind which way it went, but I just was like, it was just so tense. It was so exciting. Yeah, really good to see. I thought, I thought, sorry, I thought Shirin, Shirin Van Amroy was a hell of a ride. I, you know, I confess, I don't know much about her, but she, I presume she's on her all radar. I, yeah, I, I've, I have to say, like, I kind of expected it because I was watching her in Le Samin, like a few, I think that was last week and she was literally smashing on the cobbles so fast so I did I did kind of expect a good ride from her especially with her background in cyclocross Strada Bianchi is going to be a race that she will do pretty well in she's an exciting one for the future I think exciting one for Roubaix possibly yeah yeah it's so unusual going back to that finish it's so unusual to see two riders in a road race literally side by side for so long isn't it it's more like a track race or something that you know ordinarily one of them's in front or is you know is going for a sprint but but so, they were literally elbow to elbow most of the, most of the way up that climb yeah that might have helped Kopecky as well like you say I mean she's got a background in track hasn't she track and cross as well and so her bike handling skills were 
yeah, pretty impressive on Strada Bianchi. And she'd done so much work as well throughout the race. It wasn't even like she was, she'd just been sitting in waiting for that final climb. She was just literally so strong throughout. And I think everyone was thinking like, how can SD Works beat Van Vluten after seeing her be so strong at Omloop? And um, that was kind of the way to do it. They just made it so hard for Anamie that it was basically impossible for her to win at the end there. She just, she just didn't have the legs because they'd exhausted her. Uh, fortuitously you've actually got an article haven't you in uh, Ruler 110 uh, which is coming out very soon um, about SD Works uh, you spoke to the riders and um, team staff what um, what is it because it was such a good performance by SD Works throughout that whole race um, what is it about the team do you think that is really gelling now I think it's just they, they they manage to sort of have this understanding in the team that if one rider rides for one rider one day, then, you know, they'll get it back another day. And even though they have so many people who could win, you know, there's the they have the team manager, Danny Stam, he kind of manages egos and he, he can sort of mould a team of winners to make them sort of realise that they all just, if they all work for each other, the collective win is more important than those like individual victories. And they have a good balance between like young and old riders as well. So I think that the older riders are able to kind of teach the younger ones what it means to ride in a team and how, you know, you can't always go for your own victory, but one day your opportunity will come. And um, yeah, it's really impressive to see because when they signed Kopecky, especially, I was thinking it was a bit of a strange move for her to go to a team which had sort of all these world champions and everything when she was such a strong talent herself. But you can see it's really worked for her. And I guess you say like success breeds success, don't you? And maybe that's something else that really helps them is that if you've got one person performing, it sort of brings everyone up. It motivates everyone. Because Mulden Passio looked like genuinely thrilled with her third place, didn't she? Like, And it could it could have been any of the three of them that, that taking that win in theory because they're demi-volering in that select group as well even though Kopecky was I guess the the strongest candidate Mulman Passio is not exactly renowned for sort of taking a finish like that but you feel like they could have any one of the three could have got it and one of the interesting things in your article is the um, is Danny Stam talking about you know how they um, attracted a sponsor to um, the team because of course it was Dolmans and then uh, they that uh, sponsorship deal ended um, and it looked like they may not be able to continue but they were able to convince sponsors that you know this was actually a bargain you were getting so many big names and women's cycling was uh, a way of buying attention getting attention for a relatively small prize yeah he basically he kind of sold it as a really good business proposition to sponsors it wasn't kind of a plea like you know save the team it it wasn't really emotional it was just like look look what we can give you for a fraction of the cost you know it would be to sponsor a men's world tour team and he kind of sold like a vision of women's cycling and what it could be and the potential it had and now sort of two years on I think we're, we're really seeing that he was right and you know the sport is growing and like really quickly and it's I think what what he promised his sponsors then I think is really like coming into fruition now a few years later with races like the Tour de France Femmes, Paris-Roubaix Femmes, you know, the media attention the sport's getting, it is growing so quickly. So yeah, I mean, maybe at the time people thought when he was looking for that sponsorship that women's cycling wasn't a good place to invest, but now two years on, yeah, they've, they've really returned the investment that SD Works gave them, I think. And not, interestingly, a offshoot of a men's team. Yeah, that's what he said. I mean, he said, you know, when you think of a team like Trek Segafredo, the first 
thing you think of is the men's side of that team. Whereas when you think of Team SD Works or Bowles Dormans as it was, you, you think of the women's team straight away. And that was really important for him, I think, to keep that identity and keep it separate. While, whilst he wasn't sort of against the idea of men's world tour teams having women's counterparts, he just, he said it was good for them to have that sort of individual identity um, which, yeah, and it works well for them, I think. So Strada Bianchi out the way and a couple of the um, early classics out the way. And now we're moving on pretty solidly to a few weeks of Belgian-ness. Um, Belgium, obviously uh, famous for its bike racing in the spring, um, but also for its chips and its beer. And for um, Edition 110, Ruler Edition 110, uh, Ian, you've uh, commissioned the uh, gentleman from the Deserters podcast who a couple of years ago were introduced to the joys of Belgian cyclocross racing um, to do a, um, a, a survey, if you like, a sort of um, uh, an article about the best beer to watch classics with. I just kind of thought we could go to Belgium and go to some Trappist monasteries, but then it's all a bit of a faff these days, isn't it? And uh, the chances of it, it being curtailed by flipping COVID. Uh, so we went all the way to Deptford to the lovely uh, Dog and Bell, which is far simpler. And we took our own beer. So I've got to say uh, thank you to curators of craft who provided our, our fine selection. But uh, let the boys tell you all about it. So this is Andrew Grumbridge and Vince Raisin of the Deserter podcast with Ian uh, in a pub in Deptford and a lot of Belgian beer. Uh, for those who don't know, those ruler listeners who don't know, what is Deserter exactly? It's a lifestyle blogzine for those with a predilection for doing call. That's a good start. Um, in which case, um, why on earth did we um, commission you to like do a piece about Belgian beers? I, I... That's a very good question and one I had to ask myself at the time. Uh, but possibly you're the one to ask, why did you... Uh, ask us to do any... Well, mind you, we, we, we're, we're going to say yes, aren't we, for a start, because you're plying us with beer about a, from a country we love. What's not to like? The, yeah, that's the a sour, good point. that's what's not to like. <laughs> yeah, we'll come to the sour in a minute. Um, yeah, it was my stupid idea, admittedly. But, you know, we have done a couple of pieces together before over yes, the last few years. Right. Um, notably, the visit to Harrogate for the World Championships, yeah. which was basically a pub crawl. Was it it? Was how, how many bars did we visit? Was it 13? Oh, I yeah, it. I think so, yeah. About, yeah. Baker's dozen, yeah. Yeah, places to watch the worlds from with great beer. I mean, what a lineup! Well, it was one place to watch the worlds from, wasn't it? Harrogate, basically, because... Didn't we, uh, research, uh, you know, our unending research turn up the fact that all the races passed through Harrogate? So rather yeah. than go all over Yorkshire, we just did 13 bars in Harrogate. Absolutely, there was no point in leaving Harrogate, no. frankly. No. As like, also it was I'm very, stick by that. it was very wet. You yeah. Know? It was. Yeah. yeah. Outside of, I mean, inside Harrogate was wet enough, but outside yeah. It was. Yeah. Uh, Not as wet as the worlds themselves, though. I seem to remember. Yeah, that, that was yeah. yeah. Not I mean, at least we didn't have to cycle anywhere. Yeah, that's true. And then, of course, we went to uh, Gogshader. Yeah. Gogshader. Yeah. In the sand dunes. 
And we did have beer there, but not there wasn't the big biggest part of it. It was just experiencing cyclocross generally, which was um, which was uh, I imagine quite quite, yeah, quite an eye opener for you, Andy. I was like, it was indeed. I mean, we did have quite a lot of beers. I seem to remember. Well, I didn't. Well, so I was driving. But, oh yes, oh, yes. That, oh, yes. Sorry yes. Thank sorry you. About yeah, that. Thank you. I do remember you um, producing a six pack of a very very powerful porter up mm. on a sand dune. Mm. Uh, after that, my memory gets a little less clear. But yeah, yeah. yeah there were a lot. Of, it was very popular with the local populace. The beers. There were these six pint beer holders that people in blue body stockings were carrying around in the techno umpa tent. It's quite an experience. Yeah. Quite a mad experience, isn't it? It is, and it was. It, it wasn't the kind of uh, Trappist beers that we we uh, sampled the other the other day. It was the uh, kind of Jupiter, though. The kind of your standard lager, wasn't it? Um, yeah. The bog standard, but the locals did seem to be very fond of it from the state they were in. Yeah. When we reached the beer tent, they were all over the shop. Well, yeah. a lot of them didn't leave the tent to watch the cycling. I couldn't help no, but notice. <laughs> they only came out to boo the Dutch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right, the Dutch finished first, second, third, fourth, yeah. and fifth. There was a lot of booing, wasn't there? They didn't it? like it. No. They didn't like no. it. No, no. Uh, but moving on to this piece. Um, so, this issue is... Uh, Obviously, it'd been a classic season, you know, mm. heavy on Belgium, yeah. heavy on cobbles, heavy on grey, grim conditions, every, everything, everything basically that we love about the classics. And of course, Belgian beer is included. <laughs> did you, any, any favourites amongst the, what, how many did we, we had a dozen, didn't we, I think, yeah. if I remember right. Yes, we yeah. did, yeah. There, there, was, there was one called, uh, was it Johnny Ransombrink or Corson Dogs? Corson Dogs. Yeah, Which yeah. We, we said, like, it should obviously be a super group. Yes. But it sounds like a super group. Uh, St. Barnardus was, I think, our, our, our favourite, wasn't it, on yes, the day? It was. And, and that's the, the, the one that famously, even though it's called St. Bar- Bar- Barnardus. Barnardus is actually not named after a saint. There's no, some backstory they, uh, to that. They, 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 um, left the monastery and were no longer to be able to call themselves Trappist or refer to themselves as monks. So they came up with St. Barnardus, who we think is something to do with the, the dog that famously drinks brandy on its own up the mountain, the St. Barnard. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense, of course. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, so the, the monks used to... Uh, to brew uh, uh, this th- with this same recipe, but when they decided they didn't want to do it anymore, and um, and uh, somebody else decided they would they would do it, and they were allowed they were licensed to do it, but they weren't allowed to have like a real monk on the uh, on, on the uh, on the label. So they got some jolly, well, jolly sort of round face, red, yeah, red rascal. Yeah, rose, yeah, rosy cheeks. Rosy, Clearly been sampling yeah. tipple. Cleric. He's, he's had a few, hasn't he's he? By the looks of it. Yeah. 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 But yeah. That, that was our, that was, um, the, our joint favourite, I think. Uh, yeah. That was our favourite, yeah. yeah. Well, we, yeah. We, we, we did start with a kind of... We, we worked our way up, didn't we? Because like, we started with something that was like 4 point something percent. That's right, yeah. And wow, did it escalate quickly. I mean, 4.8% for the monks is a table beer. Yeah. You know, that's their weak one. That's what they have for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it went all the way up to something like eleven point four percent, didn't it? Uh, by then, I couldn't really stand up anyway, so <laughs> what I was drinking. Yeah. Although we did go to four more pubs after that. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, we weren't standing. Yeah. <laughs> crucially. 
I, any that um, you found disagreeable? I mean, I, 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 I know there was one I didn't go on with, but I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know if there's yeah. a consensus. The on Red Ale. Well. Yeah. Um, the Grand Cru, the Rodenbach Grand Cru. Yeah. yeah. Which I, is known as the Burgundy of, of Belgium. Is that right? Because I was getting hints of sarsens yeah. with a touch of kettle cleaner. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. It was quite horrific. That was about the time I ordered the chips, wasn't it? Because I think yeah. it was, yeah. it was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to need chips with this. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm, it was right. Vinny thinks it's actually meant it, to be like I that. I think it is. Yeah. I was starting yeah. to get used to it, but I thought, you know what? Let me have one that I like rather than you know just try and get used to one that I don't like. Yeah. Did it make you want to rush over to Belgium and like go and see some bike races? I mean, you know, Vinny, you're you're into the bike races a bit. Andy, not so much. No, I'd be up for uh, yeah. going to watch some uh, basing myself in Belgium. Yeah. For the classic season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see the, the Roubaix. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I know the misses would especially. Re- let's let let's let's be clear that Roubaix's in France. Oh. But okay. it's a classic, you know, but yeah. it's almost Belgium. Mm. Yes, yeah, isn't it finished in almost Belgium? Almost Belgium, yeah. yeah. So have either of you actually been to Belgium lately? Yes, I, I was in Belgium last month, actually, yeah. I went to, uh, I actually went to go to a football match uh, at, uh, for Standard Liège. Uh, and uh, weren't allowed. In, nobody was allowed in. <laughs> it's quite disappointing. Uh, Wait, did you did you know this before you went? No, no. We knew because co- the COVID restrictions had been lifted, but not for Standard Liège because they'd been a bit. They'd had a bit of trouble. Oh, and, uh, so they were banned. Uh, we were all banned. So I had to watch it in a bar with some Belgian beer. Sounds mm. hellish. What did you What did you plump for? Uh, I had an Orval. Uh, which I, I was very, we had as well. Which was, was one very, we had in our mix, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, there was yeah. one on there that had a, a spinning wheel where you, uh, if you couldn't decide which of 150 Belgian beers <laughs> you wanted to drink, you could just spin the wheel and let Fabulous. the wheel decide. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That would be a good idea for the Dog and Bell, wouldn't it? Because they must have yeah. 30 beers on. I couldn't yeah. decide. Get the wheel out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, we, we, when, we were, when we went to the Dog and Bell to do our photo shoot, and uh, Terry behind the bar said, uh, oh, normally we'd have matching glasses for all these beers, mm. but the students steal them all. Yeah. <laughs> so he literally yeah. had no... It's quite an eye-owner because no lovely six glasses. quid a pop, these beers, but the students nick the glasses. But, yeah, Terry was saying the, st- the students roar through the beer despite the price, mm. but they do nick the glasses. Mm. And then, uh, Vinny, you were saying there's a bar in Ghent where um, the proprietor requires you to leave a shoe as a security for your glass. Yeah. So we suggested this to Terry and he'd be like he was like, Well, I just end up with a pile of shoes. Yeah. <laughs> well I think I think that just about covers it off, doesn't it? Right, is that that's good. So that's another hundred quid, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just uh, text me. Um fax actually fact. Can you fax? <laughs> Thanks guys. Cheers. Cheers Ian. And that's the uh, guys from the Deserters podcast uh, with Ian in uh, the Dog and Bell. The Dog and Bell. The Dog and Bell. It is. It's actually one of the finest pubs in the world. Uh, They did a World Cup. They do a World Cup of pubs uh, every couple of years, and it was uh, runner-up last time. Um, I should mention all the pubs are in South East London, but still, as we know, South East London is the best place in the world. So, um, therefore, it's the second best pub in the world and we are going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the upcoming classics and uh, ruler edition uh, 110 um, after a word from uh, Orla this is ruler conversations 
Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinnewa, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. Uh, this is Ruler Conversations. I'm Ian Parkinson, and I'm uh, here with uh, Ruler's executive editor, Ian Cleverly, and uh, Ruler staff writer, Rachel Jarry. Um, now, uh, edition 110 is uh, coming up and should be in with subscribers next week and it's it's pretty much a classics uh, focused issue isn't it a lot of cobbles uh a lot of rebay a lot of belgium um just all all the all the stuff we love and uh, and riders who love the cobbles uh, including sonny corbrelli of course who uh famously cried cried his eyes out after winning rebay last year uh, Rachel, you actually spoke to uh, riders and uh, team staff uh, about the first time they'd been at Roubaix. What came out of that for you? I spoke to riders who'd, who've done it like once and then I spoke to people like Matt Heyman who did it like oh, so many times, I don't even, like way over to sort of 10 times. And I think it was quite it was quite interesting to sort of see the contrast between riders who still were really excited about it and sort of really believed in like the Roubaix dream. And he was a bit more sort of like aware of how hard it is and how and how brutal it is really um but yeah I don't know I I think the main thing to take away from it was just that it's such a hard race and just getting to the finish is an achievement for most people and I think just because of the gravity of what it means to ride Roubaix and finish in that velodrome just making it there was the main focus for a lot of riders it almost didn't matter where you were going to finish it was just meant so much to them to actually ride into the velodrome and you also spoke to um so that you know mechanics and uh, DSs and and that. and you forget it's not just a hard, obviously it's a really hard race for the riders but it's quite a hard race for the rest of the team as well isn't it yeah i spoke to um Risto Usin, who's a mechanic for Bora Hansgrohe, and he's done it quite a few times. And he was just saying it's really important for him to kind of stay focused because he's obviously seeing all these crashes around him. And he's got to focus on just his riders as hard as it is to kind of leave another rider from another team on the ground who needs a wheel or something like that. He has to just focus on where his riders are and keep a calm head, even though it's like the most chaotic race ever, especially like last year we saw the wet edition. And I think that just made it even more challenging for mechanics because there was so many crashes so many punches so it's a race of luck as well as a race of strength I think who who can kind of get through it with either no punches or the smoothest wheel changes and I think when he was saying he's serviced uh, Peter Sagan as well in that race in the past and he kind of was saying how it's quite a lot of pressure when you've got someone who might actually win the race you can kind of yeah, you can really make or break it for them. I've got a little anecdote related to that years ago. I was in, in um, a, a Team Europe car car covering one of the sectors of cobbles as a journalist, you know, just in the back there to write about the whole experience. And we stopped at the sector, got out, and the fella who was actually the team doctor who was driving the car because Paris-Roubaix, they pull everybody in, right? He hands me a gilet, a pair of wheels, and says, go and stand over there. And I said, whoa, 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 I'm, I, no, 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 no. So I'm, I'm here to write about it. He's going, no, this is Paris-Roubaix. Everybody helps. Go and stand over there. And I stood there with these wheels above my head, absolutely crapping myself. 
that Thomas Verclair was going to come down and puncture in front of me and I would screw up a real change in front of a global audience of millions. It, it, it is that kind of race where it's just controlled chaos and everybody, but everybody in the team and their wives, cousins, you know, aunts and uncles gets gets called in to, to help out. And it's back in April um, this year for the first time in a couple of years, isn't it? Um, which brings back the old um, question of, is it going to rain? Is it going to be a dry? Because we haven't had a wet April, Roubaix, for years and years and years and years. But uh, it's going to be well, good to see it back in April again. Yeah, after last year's um, chaos, I can live without that. Thank you very much. That was, that was, that was plenty, <laughs> plenty nervousness for me. And of course, uh, this year, as well as the men's Roubaix in April, it will be the second women's Paris-Roubaix, um, but without its defending champion this year. Yeah, Lizzie Dignan, she's um, on maternity leave, so she won't be there to defend her Roubaix crown, which, yeah, will be interesting. I mean, the way she won it last year with that solo attack, I don't know if that will happen again this year because all the riders have done it once. Everyone, I think, is going to be watching a bit more for moves like that. Um, and I think we could see a bit of a closer battle um, this year rather than a lone rider going away. And even without Lizzie, I mean, Trek still have so many options. They have like Lucinda Brand, who will have done a cyclocross season. So she'll love the, that kind of, like she'll have the great bike handling skills. Um, Ellen Van Dyke and Sharon Van Aanroy, who we were talking about earlier. I mean, they've got so many options. And I think it'll be a real battle between them and teams like SD Works to kind of see who can make it to the finish with as many riders to have like so many cards to play. Um, what else uh, stands out for you from uh, Edition 110? Uh, Olivier Nielsen-Julien's done a nice nice piece on uh, Mercier, the, the, the classic old-school brand, which is um, making something of a comeback. They've, they've got, got resurrected the name, bringing out some nice clothing. It's just nice to look back at the, the old stuff and, and uh, see it being brought up to date. And Paul Maunder's got a whole article about cobbles. Yes, he's gone deep. I, I, like, I did like the title, which I think Andy came up with. Uh, thank you, Andy. Which is the joy of sets. Yes. See what he did there? Yeah. With two T's. Um, yeah, lovely piece by Paul. Just like totally dissecting the cobble, what it is, where it comes from, and why we love them. And, uh, the, and the cover, indeed. I don't know if you've seen the cover. It's like an exploded, exploded cobble illustration. Beautifully done. Okay, Rachel Jarry, Ian Cleverly, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Um, that's it from this Ruler Conversations. There will be a Ruler Tech podcast along next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.